0: Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, and it can be found on page 984 of your uh, Pew Bibles, and please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness.
1: This morning we uh, returned to the book of Colossians again and our conversation about refocusing our vision as a church and we've been in this process for a few weeks and we've received some really helpful feedback so far both from the congregational meeting we had a few weeks ago and from the time that uh, elders have been able to spend with some of the home groups so far that's going to continue on uh, this week and we're looking forward to being able to share an update uh, next Sunday after the service. Um, As we share a meal together, but we also throughout this conversation want to make sure that our thoughts and our prayers about what God's calling us to are guided by the scriptures and more specifically are driven by the gospel. The good news of who God is and what he's done to establish his kingdom and to deal with our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit. That has to be our pivot foot. That has to be our heart. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And so we turn once again to Colossians and to Paul's unrelenting emphasis on the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus for the life and ministry of the church. Uh, keep your Bibles open there to Colossians 3, and I invite you to... Pray with me as we take a look at uh, this passage together. Gracious God, this is your word, and we desire to hear from you. And so would you meet us this morning? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see you and hearts that are eager and soft and ready to be changed by your truth? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, of the countless ways that the internet has changed the world in the last decade or two, well, two or three decades now, Uh, the ease of finding or leaving an online review of something, whether it's a product you're trying to buy or recently purchased or a service you have recently had or are looking for, uh, the ease of finding or leaving an online review has completely changed the way that business happens today. Uh, In the past, if you were shopping for a vacuum cleaner, you used to have to find a copy of Consumer Reports or something like that and hope that they actually reviewed the model that you're looking at. Otherwise, you just kind of had to guess. Or if you were uh, looking at different hotels or restaurants, you had to buy a travel guide or, or hope that maybe there was a review in a newspaper somewhere or otherwise, you just had to show up and, and try it out. But today, you can sort through thousands of reviews of vacuum cleaners on Amazon or or hundreds of, of reviews of hotels or restaurants on TripAdvisor or something like that. And And you could shop for dentists and lawyers and realtors and plumbers and mechanics and any kind of service, any kind of good you're looking for. You can find reviews conveniently, you know, Uh, labeled as five-star or four-star or whatever, um, though based solely on the opinions of people. uh, And you can find that information online. What's interesting, though, is that now you can even leave or find reviews for churches online as well. Uh, You know, is this a three-star church or a four-star church? What's the, what's the children's ministry like? And so on and so forth. Uh, according to Facebook, after 10 reviews, Westgate is a 4.2 star church. <laughs> it's not bad, but we've got, got a little room for improvement. Now, to be honest, I, I find the, the commercialization of church marketing like that relatively gross, uh, as though the church is a service industry or a retailer and the gospel is a good and each church is trying to kind of increase their market share or consumer base or so on. It's really silly. And yet the idea that a church's witness should be credible. That its character should be compelling. That is not far off the mark. If we continue with the Agricultural metaphors we've been using to understand uh, Colossians. The local church should not only be concerned with the quantity of its fruit, more and more people coming to know the Lord, but also the quality of its fruit. Is the gospel producing godliness and character in our lives? Steadfast maturity in Christ is being reconciled to God and forgiven of our sin, actually changing us to be more loving, more forgiving, more unified, more joyful, more and more like Jesus. After all, if if we're not experiencing the kind of change in heart and behavior and attitude and relationship that we tell others the gospel creates, if we're not experiencing that, Why should we expect them to listen to our message? And so after Paul lays the foundation for the gospel in his letter to Colossians, that any growth that we see or experience comes from being rooted in Christ, it's not a result of what we can do, of of what we can come up with from below, the kind of trying to serve God without actually depending on God that he takes down in chapter 2. After kind of, you know, establishing, laying that foundation in the gospel, he tells us in chapter 3 to set our minds on things above where Christ is, to set our focus on him, which means putting off some practices and desires and putting on others. So like a grapevine, you have to cut off and throw away the rotten grapes that corrupt the rest of the plant that are unnatural to our new life in Christ. And so so Paul tells us in, in chapter 3, 5 through 11, to put away or to cut off certain character traits, certain desires and attitudes that poison the community and that pollute our relationship with God and that damage our witness to the world. Things like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, dishonesty, this list in verses 5 through 11. So we used to walk in these things, but now that we have died with Christ and been raised with Christ, they're no longer true of who we are. They're no longer appropriate to our new nature in Christ, and so we must cut them off, get rid of them. In the same way, because of who we are, because we are rooted in Christ, we not only cut off certain attributes, certain character qualities that are unhealthy, we also cultivate godly ones. The kind of character that ought to, uh, that we ought to expect in a gospel-driven community, gospel-driven church. The, the kind of character that makes us a compelling community. Which brings us to our passage this morning, Colossians three, twelve through 14. Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the character of a gospel-driven church, a church that's been changed by Christ. Now we're going to look more closely at each of those virtues in a few minutes. But the tricky thing about cultivating character is that you cannot manufacture it. You can't just look at this list and say, I'm going to try harder today to be these things or do these things. It's not like a recipe. You just get the right ingredients and follow the rules. You're going to get a good product in the end. Uh, Fruit is organic. It's living. And therefore, by definition, it cannot be faked or manufactured. You cannot fake love. At least not for very long without being found out. Uh, You can't just try harder to forgive someone if you don't want to forgive them. It's only real forgiveness if it comes out of the desires of the heart. And simply being told to love someone or being told to be kind or be humble or any of these virtues, simply being told to do that doesn't actually produce in your heart the love or humility or patience or any of those things. I mean if you think about, you know, as a child, uh if you have a sibling uh or or a close friend, no doubt you experienced that at some point the the occasional squabble where you got caught by your parents being mean to your sister or something like that. And what is it that your parents always made you say? I see the smiles. What what was it? Say I'm sorry, right? To which you, sorry, you know, we we might mumble some, sorry, you know. And then once you did that, what is it that they always did? Say it like you mean it. Say it like you mean it. And that's so accurate because you don't really mean it, but you say it like you mean it. And you know, but there's, there's no amount of your parents telling you to say you're sorry that will actually produce sorrow in your heart. It doesn't work that way. You might be able to muster up a, a hearty I'm sorry enough to convince them that you meant it and they'll lay off. But if it doesn't come from the heart, is it really true sorrow? Is it really forgiveness if it's not coming from the heart? It's not real forgiveness. Any more than buying a, a, a bunch of plastic grapes from Michael's and hanging them on a grapevine outside is real fruit. It might look good from the street, but it's not the real thing. And so being told to say I'm sorry isn't going to produce forgiveness in my heart, nor is being told to love someone going to produce love in my heart, or to be patient or compassionate. All of those things, if they're real, must flow from the heart and not be this external tack-on. You can't fake character or manufacture. It's organic. It has to come from within. And so, here's Paul saying... Do these things. Be compassionate. Love one another. How is genuine Christ-like character possible if simply being told to do something doesn't actually produce that change? We can't manufacture it, but we can nurture it. The only way that a grapevine grows is naturally. It's got to be It comes out of a solid root system with proper supports. And so the only way to cultivate real fruit in our lives, the fruit of transformed character, is to remain connected to the root from where that life comes and to rely on the supports, the trellis that God gives for the growth. And so what is the root? What is the the trellis that, that makes maturity and genuine character possible? Paul has made a big deal throughout this entire letter about being rooted in Christ. He comes back to that again and again. And he does it again right at the beginning of our passage. Look again at verse 12. And notice that Paul doesn't just tell people to do something first He reminds them who they are. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, and so on. He doesn't just tell us to do something. First, he reminds us who we are. That we have been chosen by God to be his children, not because of anything that we've done, but by his grace. That we are holy and blameless, not because we figured out this religion thing and we cleaned up our own lives. And boy, is God lucky now to have us on his team. Not because of anything we've done. We don't bring anything to the table but our sin. We're holy and blameless because through faith we've been united with God's holy and blameless son. So when God looks at us, he sees us through his son. When he commands us, he's already provided the spirit for us to be able to obey. And and so we must remain rooted to Christ if we're going to bear any sort of genuine fruit of changed character. We never move on from the gospel of Jesus. And if you've heard that a thousand times here, we're going to say it 10,000 times more. That we don't outgrow our need for the grace of God. It's not as though we we start our relationship with God by grace through faith, and then the rest is up to us from here on, and I just gotta keep up the performance. That is not only soul crushing, it's unbiblical. Paul says in Galatians 3, have you begun by the Spirit? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Are you gonna move on from the grace of God and the Spirit and, and you've got this now? You're foolish, he says. You can't do it. And it doesn't honor God and it's not going to work. His grace is sufficient not only for beginning a relationship with Christ, but for walking with Christ every single day. And that is where this genuine fruit of changed character comes from. It must come from the root. Jesus says in John 15, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so it's got to be anchored in the root. But not only is Christ the root who provides the growth, he's also the trellis that supports the growth of godly character within the family of God. If you Again, think of, of a grapevine. Not only does it have to be firmly rooted, it needs supports to hold it up out of the mud, into the sun, where it's able to grow. And in verses 15 to 17, Paul tells us three things that God has given us to support the growth of Christian character. The growth, he, the character he calls us to in verses 12 through 14. So three, like, think of rails on the fence. The peace of Christ, the word of Christ, and the name of Christ. These are the three supports he's given us for nurturing true character. So the peace of Christ, verse 15, he says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Godly character among imperfect people, things like kindness, humility, and forgiveness, that's only going to be possible if we submit ourselves to the peace that we have in Christ. The peace that he accomplished on the cross, he tells us back in chapter 2. Peace with God and peace with each other because our sin has been paid in full. So that peace that he's accomplished, that is to rule our hearts. That is to be our final arbiter when we've got A complaint or an issue with one another the peace of christ is to rule over us not our personal interests or desires not this agenda or that but the peace of christ it's to let the gospel dictate how we treat each other am i interacting with one another based on the peace that christ has won for us on the cross is that ruling my heart that's the first rail in the trellis The second is the word of Christ, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the second support God gives to nurture our character is his word, namely the gospel message of Scripture. Not just the word that comes from Christ, but the word that is about Christ, The message of Scripture that has been summarized so wonderfully by Tim Keller, that we are more flawed and sinful than we ever dared believe, yet we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope at the same time. So so we are more flawed and sinful than we ever dared to believe. That's simply acknowledging what Paul says back in chapter 2, verse 13. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. If you think your life is bad, if you think your character is bad, you don't actually know the beginning of it. That's how fallen we are. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. So more sinful than we ever dared imagine. But second, we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope at the very same time. God's mercy is more than enough to deal with that sin that that we have a hard time even even uh, articulating his mercy is more than enough to deal with it. And we will never exhaust or find the end of his grace. So often we think that that my sin, we can go through two different reactions, either I'm not really that bad or I'm so bad, God will never have anything to do with me. Thinking I'm not that bad minimizes his grace because it says, I don't really need it, at least not as much as that guy. But thinking I'm so bad that he could never accept me is to say that what Christ did on the cross simply wasn't enough, that I, I, I'm beyond that kind of redemption. Jesus would need to die again or, or, or whatever. We're saying his grace isn't enough. You can never exhaust or find the end of God's grace. This is the truth of the gospel. And this is the message of Scripture. That we've been forgiven all our trespasses by, because God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, setting it aside, nailing it to the cross. We need to let that message dwell in our hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Which means we have to make our home in the Scriptures. We need to live in this book so that its message and its way of thinking shape our hearts, what we think and what we feel and how we live. Of course, there are all sorts of ways to let our lives become saturated with Scripture. Teaching and admonishing, it talks about. Singing hymns and songs and spiritual songs, or or however he puts it, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Songs that specifically point us to the gospel message of Scripture. That's the driving factor when Drew's picking songs that we sing on Sunday morning. Are these songs going to help us make much of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ? And and as we do that, as we live in the Word, as we sing the Word, as we teach the Word, that shapes our heart and becomes a support for the kind of character God calls us to live. It's the second rail. Third is is the name of Christ. So the peace of Christ, word of Christ, the name of Christ. Verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And this reminds us why we do what we do. Why we do what we do. Is it for our own sake? Is it because of what we get out of it? Or is it for Christ's sake to do everything on his behalf for his purposes, his glorious reputation for the sake of his gospel? If that's what's at stake in how I live, not really my reputation, but Jesus's reputation, how is that going to, going to affect the way I treat people, uh, especially within the family of faith? If I know that Christ's reputation is what's on the line and the way I respond to someone. That's going to shape, that's a support for the kind of godly character God calls us to. And so Christ is the root who provides the growth. He's also the trellis who supports that growth through his peace, through his word, through his name. So what then does the real fruit actually look like? More importantly, what does it taste like as we experience community together come back to verses 12 through 14 the first thing that paul mentions is compassion compassionate hearts heartfelt mercy it's the sense of deep concern for someone in need a concern that motivates us to actually do something so there's pity you know and we can you know draw lines and definitions in different ways. But oftentimes, pity is just kind of this, oh, you poor thing. Compassion motivates us to do something, to enter into that trouble and share it with them. Compassion is, in a lot of ways, what Mark gave testimony to experiencing in the uh, fallout from their house fire. Uh, People entered in, and not just Westgate, other churches, Uh, work, neighbors, they experience compassion from a lot of people. But real compassion comes from a heart that's changed and supported by the gospel. What makes it possible and increasingly involuntary, you can't help but enter in, is a deepening sense that God has had compassion on me. When I understand the compassion he's had on me, That he's looked at my pitiful state and he's not left me there, but he's entered into it and reached down uh, even though I didn't deserve it. Now, here I am, a, a, a sinner deserving judgment, and God, instead of returning evil for evil, returns good. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He knows every thought of our hearts. I mean, you just think of your last week. Block it off at seven days. All the nasty, ugly things that have either been in your heart or come out of your mouth or whatever. That's just a week. He knows all of that for all eternity. And yet, he loves us. And he gave his son to rescue us. He didn't leave us in our sorry state, but he entered into it and he made it his problem in order to pull us out of it. That's compassion. And the more we realize what he's done for us, the more compassionate our hearts will be toward others. But what happens to compassion when I forget the gospel? When I fail to depend on it? If I forget my own weakness or the sufficiency of God's grace? That is when we begin to respond to people's trouble with judgment. You know, you did this. You got yourself into this. You should have thought of that before you did it. And we look with judgment and a closed heart. Or that's when we react with anger. I mean, because of your problems, now I have to rearrange my life to bail you out. You ever felt that? Or sometimes we even give room for malice. Somebody else's problem becomes our opportunity to get ahead. We take advantage of their hardship. You're never going to do that if you remember your own sorry state before the Lord and the incredible compassion He had on you. When I forget that, that's when I free myself. I give myself permission to be judgmental. But if I'm anchored in the root and relying on the supports, compassion's actually possible in the community of faith. The second is kindness, doing good to one another. Our natural inclination is to offer kindness to each other in proportion to the kindness we receive from that other. So I'll be kind if you're kind. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You stab my back, I'll stab harder. And that's just kind of the default of how human relationships work. Of course, there's exceptions to that. There are beautiful, kind people. But that's the default of our fallen nature. But God shows us a better way. The word that Paul uses for kindness here usually describes God's own kindness and goodness in saving his people. So it's the kindness that he extended to us while we were yet sinners by sending Jesus. Doing good when we deserve the opposite. And again, when that captures my heart, that God was, did good to me, even though I deserve the opposite of it, that, when the peace of Christ rules my heart and I see that, how can I respond to someone in any other way than to seek what's best for them, even if I don't feel like they deserve it? It's a kindness that comes from being rooted in the gospel. Paul speaks then of humility, thinking of others as more significant than yourselves as he puts it in Philippians. Uh, Humility is not thinking lowly of yourself. Sometimes we think that, that it's like this self-loathing, this wallowing in your weakness. That's not humility. Humility is thinking right thoughts of God and therefore high thoughts of God. It's thinking highly of others and it's thinking accurately about ourselves. That we are sinners saved by grace. And that both of those things are true at the same time. When I forget that, when I forget how holy God is and how far short I fall or how loving God is and how he's raised me up in Christ, it's easy to be judgmental and proud and to think that I've got it together, that God is lucky to have me on his team. And if all y'all would just get you know, your act together, things would be better, be more like me. You know, This kind of arrogance. It comes from forgetting the gospel, forgetting who we are apart from Christ and who we are in Christ. Then there's meekness, being gentle toward others. Sometimes we think of meekness as being weak. Just because it rhymes with meek, weak and meek don't mean the same thing. Uh, Meekness is not about how much strength you have. It's what you do with the strength that you have. Are you using your power to get what you want out of life like a bully on the playground? Or are you being gentle toward others and leaving the results in God's hands? Refraining from using my power to manipulate and instead being gentle, trusting that God's the one calling the shots, not me. That's meekness. Closely related to that is patience, giving time and space to others without getting angry or thinking less of them. And that's probably one of the hardest virtues God calls us to in the church. But think about it like this. Patience in the community of faith is simply extending to others the grace that God has extended to us. See how all of these things go back to the gospel. It's extending to others the grace that God has extended to us. Think about how patient God is toward us in our sin. You know, uh, it's frustrating when, when you keep telling somebody to do something and they keep doing the opposite or you tell them to stop and they never listen. That's frustrating. It's easy, you know. And whether you're, if you're a teacher in a classroom or a parent or a, or a boss or whatever, you've had those experiences and it's just, you know. And then you think, wait a second, that's me. That's exactly what I do to the Lord. As he's calling me to live some way. And I in my selfishness am choosing something else. And he is so patient with me. When I extend to others the grace God extends to me. That shows itself in patience. It shows itself in patience. And that patience is necessary for the body of Christ. Whenever sinners occupy the same space. You're going to need patience. You're going to need patience. and And... And we need that because none of us have arrived. Westgate has not arrived. We're not going to arrive this side of heaven. And so patience is a critical virtue as we display the character of God. As we tr- seek to be a compelling community, if we don't have patience toward one another, that's never going to work. If if uh, if when I'm hurt, I immediately you know respond by attacking or by fleeing or or leaving a bad review online somewhere. Whose reputation am I protecting? Is it mine or is it Christ's? But if the name of Christ, if I'm doing everything in the name of Christ, I'm going to be patient. And and how much more is God's reputation exalted when instead of running, we actually run toward the issue and we seek to resolve it by the grace God gives us? Where, Where the world can look and see, these guys hurt each other and, wow, they still love each other and they're now reconciled. How? What? You know That adorns the name of Christ. But that requires the next virtue, which is bearing with one another in love and forgiveness. If you think patience was hard, forgiveness is even harder. It's the real test of Christian community. But the logic of it is quite simple. If you look at verse 13... As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. The logic of forgiveness is very simple. Putting it into practice, not so much. What if they do it again? How do I know they're really repentant? What about my pain and my humiliation? What about the cost I've endured because of their sin? The emotional cost, the financial, the social. Is the peace of Christ really sufficient to rule in our hearts when we've been sinned against? To be our final arbiter? Is the gospel really sufficient to bring reconciliation and forgiveness between two sinners on earth? I mean, sure, we're willing to trust the gospel to deal with our sin before the wrath of a holy God. But whether it's enough to deal with the wrath of an unholy spouse or an unholy ex-boyfriend or girlfriend or an unholy colleague, uh, I don't know if the gospel could take care of that one. But I want us to hear this. If the death and resurrection of Christ in our place on the cross, if that is capable of saving your soul from hell, it is more than capable of taking a train wreck of a friendship, a strained work relationship, a faltering marriage, even a marriage fractured by betrayal. It's more than capable of taking those and putting them back together and bringing out of them something far more beautiful than was there in the first place. If if Christ can restore my soul from hell and redeem me, he has the power to put the community of faith back together. Yes, the pain is real. It's more real than any of us can imagine. And yes, trust takes time to rebuild. But Jesus is enough. If we're willing to trust Him, and both parties have to be willing to trust Him for that to work. And so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Sometimes one party's not willing to go there. But if both parties are willing to take Jesus at His word, reconciliation is not just possible in the church, it's normal. It's normal. If Christ's grace is sufficient for me, it's it's sufficient for those who've sinned against me as well. Jesus didn't just die for my sin, he died for theirs too. And when I remember that, that, that the revenge and justice that my heart really wants has already been poured out on Christ in their place, I'm free to extend love where instead I wanted vengeance, vindication. Forgiveness. And that love that I'm free to extend because I can cancel the debt of sin through Christ, that love is the crowning jewel of Christian community. verse 14, Paul speaks of love as this overarching virtue that binds all of these different virtues of compassion and kindness and humility and so on together in perfect harmony. Loyal, sacrificial covenant love. Not just the feeling of affection, though that should be there and, and hopefully growing, but it is a covenant commitment for the good of the other at the cost of self. That's what love is. A covenant commitment for the good of the other at the cost of self. And that love motivates us toward all of these other virtues. It's what holds them into play. And motivates us to do the hard work of being kind and compassionate, of forgiving. And again, the chief motivation for that love is the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ loved us. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as the propitiation for our sins. But there's one more key virtue to note. It's sprinkled throughout our passage and that's thankfulness. Notice how often thankfulness comes up. In verses 15 to 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And be thankful. Singing psalms and hymns. And spiritual songs. With thanksgiving in your heart to God. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so gratitude permeates. The Christian life. And that makes perfect sense again. When the gospel's in focus. If God has done these things for me. How else am I going to respond except with a heart of gratitude? And so gratitude, thankfulness ought to flavor the whole of our Christian life and character. These are the marks of a compelling community. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, love, and gratitude. That's the character of a gospel-driven church. And we shouldn't need an online review system for people to tell whether or not that's true of us. They should be able to tell by spending time with us. We should be able to tell by spending time with each other. We have not arrived, and we will not arrive this side of heaven. But God has given us everything we need in His Son, by His Spirit, to make us grow, being rooted in Christ and upheld by His peace, His Word, and His name. And so, are we growing in that character? Is, that, is there a credibility to our witness? Is God really changing us and making us more like Christ? A truly compelling community. Is going to be formed by the gospel, guided by the gospel, and nurtured by the gospel of Jesus. It must be driven by the good news of Christ. May that be so among us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, as we consider what you have called us to, we confess right now that we have fallen so short. As a community, as a church, individually, Lord, we confess that so often instead of compassion, we look on with indifference and anger. Instead of kindness, we are cold. Instead of humility, we are proud. Instead of forgiveness, we resent. Instead of love, we love ourselves. And Lord, we confess that that is not true of who we are in Christ. And we ask your forgiveness for that. And we ask that by your spirit, by your grace, we would grow. We would grow and we would experience this community among ourselves and that that would be a fragrant aroma to the watching world. And thank you for the ways in which we have experienced it among us, the ways that we can give testimony to your goodness and mercy in and through us. But Lord, may we always do it in the name of Christ, not in the name of Westgate. May we always do it according to the word of Christ. And may we always do it in submission to the peace of Christ that you have won for us on the cross. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.